be quite honest, I'd given up. I mean, I worked really hard at it, and for about three years, I would guess. And it was it was beginning to have an effect upon me psychologically. I think you know all the rejection, and I, you know I'm not as tough as other people. And uh, and I I said you know it's just for my own mental health sake I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop. And that was when I went to work at the library, and I was real happy. And I've been working at the library for about five years, and continuing to get things published in literary reviews periodically. One day uh, I get this call from this guy. He says I'm Ron Souter. I'm starting a publishing company in Salisbury, and I just read a poem of yours. And if you ever have a book, you know I might like to. Publish and I said, well, I've, I've got a manuscript. And he said, well, send it to me. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind the story, the writing process, and any other sort of miscellaneous writing stuff that we want to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have William Peake author of the award-winning novel, The Oblitz Confession. He received his undergraduate degree from Washington and Lee and his master's from the creative writing program at Hollins University. Bill's poetry and prose have been published in magazines and literary reviews. His poetry has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Released by Seekin Publishing, The Oblitz Confession has won numerous awards, including a silver medal in the Best New Voice Fiction category of the Benjamin Franklin Awards, the National Indie Excellence Award for Religion Fiction, and the Catholic Press Association awarded it second place in their Catholic Novel of the Year category. In December, Kirkus Reviews named the Oblitz Confession to its list of the best indie books published in 2015. And when he's not writing fiction, Bill works for the Talbot County Free Library in Easton, where he is regularly hailed on the streets of Easton as, Hey, the library guy. <laughs> so welcome it's to true, the, yeah. <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Bill. Thank you. Thank well, you for having me. Oh, absolutely. One of the thing when I heard um we have some sort of mutual friends, uh Ron Souter, who of oh, course sure. is your publisher, yeah. and Barbara Lockhart and uh some other folks, and they were like, You gotta talk to Bill Peak. He's he's oh, wow. fantastic and they everyone raised I, I give them a lot of money. Yeah. You yeah. know, <laughs> I find people will be very complimentary yeah, when yeah, you pay it them. Bribes, yeah, it works. <laughs> <laughs> we're not above paying for friendship anymore. <laughs> But uh, they all sort of raved about your novel, and I hope that I pronounced it right. That oblate, oblate, yeah. It's oblate. it's not it's not an easy word to say. No, the, and uh, I, I, I I practiced all night, so <laughs> and I probably didn't get it right. No, but, I think you got it pretty close. But so and I and, and I must confess, I had to go to Wikipedia to figure out what that word meant, and it is a person who is basically um, donated or dedicated or well, as in the case of your story, a young boy is given by his father to the church, um, and this is seventh century England. Yeah. And uh, so I had to kind of Google that, but maybe you could kind of help me kind of understand a little bit more of what that is. Okay. In the 7th century, uh, it's about 650 AD, the so-called Dark Ages, it was a fairly common practice for families to donate one of their children to a monastery with the understanding that that child would then spend the rest of his life there and grow up to become a monk. My novel is told from the point of view of an elderly monk who, at the end of his life, is coming to grips with the fact that as a child, an oblate, he committed a terrible sin. Hence the book's title, The Oblate's Confession. We don't really know for sure. Oblates were around for a long time, but we don't really know for sure because the church didn't record it when they quit doing oblates. There's, and nowadays, as Tony was mentioning earlier, 
when we were talking before the show, um, uh, there, there is an order today called the Oblates. Uh, but that's not the same. Those are adults who've chosen on their own to become a part of a religious order. Uh, in the Dark Ages, as I said, it was the child had no choice in it. Um, it was, uh, uh, must have been something of a shock. Um, to be suddenly removed from your family. It was one of the reasons I was so intrigued by it. When I learned of the practice, I wanted to write about it and try to imagine what life would be like for a child like that. You also have to remember, too, it was it was an entirely different world. You know, the past, and it's not just a foreign country in some ways. It really is a, a different universe. Um, we have to remember in, in, at this time in the 7th century, uh, plague was a common Ill- problem. Famine was common. Uh, war was common. Uh, certainly in this part, this all takes place in Northumbria, northeastern England, and right. there were small warring kingdoms fighting each other all the time. So any one child at that point in time, the chances of making it to adulthood were slim to none. Uh, you, you didn't have real good odds. One way that a family of parents could assure, make it more likely that their child would survive was to give them to a monastery because in a monastery – um, you know, it's they had a, food. Yeah, they, well, they had food. You're <laughs> they had absolutely walls. right. It was, it, it, in a way, monasteries were sort of factories for making food. You had a, a whole big team of men whose primary jobs were one to pray and two to make food, just as Tony and, said. And beer. Yeah. And beer. That's right. <laughs> Unfortunately, my monastery doesn't, in the novel, doesn't make beer. But you're absolutely right. And I, I love Belgian ales, but Abbey ales. But the, um, but so they made great food. As a matter of fact, until probably about the 17th century, if you, the, the, the top agricultural experts in, in the world were monasteries by and large. If you wanted to know how to grow a particular crop, you contacted the local Cistercians. Um, so they really were good at growing food, number one. Number two, because it was a group of men, it wasn't quite as easy for an invading army to go in there and kill everybody. They did occasionally, but you, you know you needed quite a few guys to go in there and do that. And there was there was less for them to lose. They didn't have families that they were defending or worrying about, and there were walls and. That's right. Although there was, unfortunately, sometimes gold. Yeah, the Vikings tended to go after right. the monasteries. But and then finally, last but not least, at this time, for all intents and purposes, no one learned how to read. Okay, so if you if the only shot you had at any kind of an education, at any sort of worldview, even, was to become a monk. Uh, you by giving a child to a monastery, you were guaranteeing, pretty much guaranteeing, that he would grow up and learn how to read and write. Uh, and know something of the of the larger world. Um, so it was sort of different from what we would think of today. Um, so I mean, that- it seems kind of like, a, you know, when I first saw that, I was like, man, that seems like a tough thing. But then, you know, once you kind of think and say, okay, this is not 2016 giving away a kid. This is, you know, in a time where, you know, women died all the time in childbirth. And yeah. it was growing up, you know, just getting to, you know, their teenage years sometimes was, you know, a, a miracle. So it seems like almost like a, an insurance plan or insurance policy to be like, okay, we might not make it, but this one is definitely going to have a food in his belly, a roof over his head and knowledge in his head. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It was, it, you gave him a pretty good shot at, 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 at life. Um, it was, uh, but it must have been a wrenching decision for all involved. I can't, oh, I can't, I can't imagine. imagine. Yeah, yeah. And and that was also part of the appeal for me too. As I as I began to write the book and study and think about the character, and uh, I began to realize, you know, all of us, I think, to one degree or another, from time to time, find it, ourselves feeling as if we've been dropped down into a a world and a culture completely not of our making, and and, right. and, and not certainly something we don't really fully understand. Um, 
all of us, I think, to one degree or another, always sort of looking and trying to find a place in the world that we feel comfortable in, to find a sense of belonging. And that's something that I thought think oblates probably, by definition almost, spent a lot of their lives trying to, to do. And so I think even in today's world, I hope that my character has something that he may be able to teach readers today. Well, one of the things that I think that there's always a danger of is saying, well, they didn't they didn't love their children the way we love our children. That's how it was so easy to get. It's 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 very easy to remove to let the centuries and the, I mean, and the like abject filth and poverty kind of like, kind of like separate you from that. But that's that's not the case at all. I don't think. And um, in your book, did you get a chance to deal so much with the with the separation anxiety of the family, the separation anxiety of the child? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I did a real good job of it, Tony. Sure yeah, yeah. Listen, all those awards say you did a good job. The question is, um, I don't want to ask. I don't want to ask a question that I don't know the answer to in this way. But you haven't given a child away personally, right? <laughs> no, no. So, and so, if you wanted to kind of talk about how how you kind of get yourself in that in that mindset where you can describe what it's like to be in a given away position and to be in a giving away position. Well, I think part of it is what I was, I was just saying earlier. I think all of us to wonder or another feel a little alienated from our, our planet um, and our culture. And so I could, I could identify a little bit that way. Uh, certainly as, as, as a, a modern uh, human, I have been in many situations in which I felt that I didn't fully belong and I could identify that way. Uh, just thinking about that, uh, you know, being, put in first grade for the first time. You remember what that was like, and you went to an institution for the first time, and there were all these strangers around you, and there were all these rules you didn't understand, and it was confusing and frightening. Um, you know, I could remember that. Uh, so those gave me a starting point. Right. Uh, and then the characters, you know, they take on a life of their own, uh, and they teach you. You know, you begin to realize, oh, this is what he would think, and this is the way he would feel. And, yes, we learn a lot through his memories mm-hmm. and also some contact of what his fam- his parents went through as part of that process. Um, so with regard to this is 7th century England, we're clearly modern folks sitting around this table. Could you talk a little bit about – because this is one of the things I'm always fascinated is research. Sure. And – so you you are putting your reader of you know your modern day reader in seventh century England, which I, for me personally that sounds like a very daunting task. But you know, pillars of the earth, I was right there with that. So um, you know, would you talk a little bit about the the research and how that kind of kind of worked in for you? Sure, and I think it would have been a, a daunting task, and it wasn't easy. Don't get me wrong, but it was made much easier by the fact that early on in the process. I discovered um, an author from the time period that some of you may remember from your history classes called the Venerable Bede. Um, he wrote in the seventh century. He was a monk himself. He was an oblate himself. Uh, when he was seven years old, um, his parents gave him to the monastery of Monk Wearmouth Jarrow, also in Northumbria. And he spent the rest of his life there. They think that he probably never left the monastery and as a result spent his entire life, for all intents and purposes, in an area about the size of, of greater downtown uh, Trap, Maryland. Uh, or greater downtown Berlin, actually. It's, 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 oh, it's, greater it, down, it, tra- down Trap. Everyone, that's an excellent yeah, point yeah, of reference. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> yeah, well, if you know, the, it, that's about the size of a, a medieval, uh, not medieval, uh, a, a, a monastery in the 7th century. Uh but despite that provinciality, mm. um, he went on to learn, speak, and write three different languages. Um, he 
published, wrote uh, innumerable books. We don't have all the books he wrote, including he created the first tide charts ever made for the, Eng- the English Isles, the British Isles, that were, and they were so accurate. Now, this is a guy who left, never left the monastery. They were so accurate that the Royal Navy was still using them to navigate around England until the 16th century. Uh, this guy was a genius. Okay, right. so when they talk about the Dark Ages – there were some spots of light in there. And one of the books he wrote is a book called A History of the English Church and People. And it's truly, everyone recognizes it as the first true history ever written of England. He checked sources. He didn't record things unless he had proof that they'd really happened. Uh, it's an excellent history. And, and I found this thing early on in my research, and I realized, my God, I've got the material here for 12 novels. Wow. Uh, yeah, if you ever get a chance, it's a really good book to read. Um, it's it's very interesting. Uh, and... Uh, uh, if your local library doesn't have it, you can get it through Interlibrary Loan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like I know this guy at Talbot County. Yeah, I, I know a guy. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, yeah. He, he'll help you. Give him, give him a call. No <laughs> I'll problem. Just, I'll just yell at him yeah, on the street. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, library guy. <laughs> and my wife calls me that. It's <laughs> oh man. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about the the writing process for you? So that's a monumental amount of research. You have this character that you know you're trying to connect with. Did this kind of evolve over? You know, was this a 10-year project for you? Was this something that had, you know, you had thought about when you were at Washington and Lee and then it came forward? Or how did this kind of, like, germ Germany for you? Well, you're a writer. You know, in a sense, there's no answer to that question. I sure, mean, I can, no, I, no. yeah, yeah, there really isn't. I mean, I, you know, even as a child, I can remember the, the idea of time travel always really appealed to me even as a kid. So the idea that, you know, that you could, that there were, there were all these you know, millions of people who have lived throughout history and they're all gone and we can never know, you know, they had big complicated lives just like us and we can never touch them. We can never know what what they were really like. But then as I got older and I became a writer, I realized, you know, maybe through the vehicle of my, the medium of my craft, I might be able to, however vicariously, sort of transport myself and hopefully my readers to this other time. And so that was the appeal of it. Um, it was a big process. It did. It was a learning experience, as I said earlier. The you know my my characters taught me things as I went along. I began to realize that's not right, and I'd have to go back and rewrite. So it took me uh, it, from when I actually started put pen to paper or, or fingers to, to keyboard. Um, the uh, it probably was easily a good ten years. My wife would say it was longer than that. <laughs> the uh, and it. Uh, and as for the process itself, I, I'm sort of like Sir Gawain of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. You know, he, he, his, his strength waxed as the, as the sun rose and waned as it went down. And I'm the same way. Boy, I, I got a good hour, hour and a half in me in the morning. And then after that, I can keep writing, but I'll ruin what I wrote during that first hour and a half if sure. I'm not careful. I can do scut work and I can do research, but unfortunately I'll lose it. But why, why seventh century monasteries and not 18th century, I don't know. Pirates. Pirates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd have made a lot more money. Yeah. <laughs> Good question. Uh, don't tell my wife. <sighs> the, um, uh, yeah, there are a number of reasons, but if I had to point at one, um, when I was a kid, when I was in my 20s, um, uh, I developed a, 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 a chronic illness, which wasn't major, anyone's serious, but it gave me pain all the time. Mm. And, uh, and it was, not a lot of fun. And a friend gave me some, the doctors told me they couldn't do anything about the pain. A friend gave me some relaxation tapes 
And he said that might help. And it did help. And listening to him, I realized, you know, this is when I was in college, this, this is what kids were talking about who were doing transcendental meditation. This is like meditation. And I was not one of those kids. When I was in college, I was way too busy drinking beer. Right. Uh, but I, but I, I, this kind of got me interested in meditation. It also happened that, as I said, I was in my mid-20s, so I was right at that age where you start realizing, you know, maybe I'm not the smartest guy on the planet. Right. Maybe, maybe there are a few other, you know, maybe the church that I left so proudly back when, when I was in college maybe has something to teach me. And so I was trying to kind of reconnect with the church. So those two things came together. I was interested in going back to Christianity. And I discovered that in the Christian church, there I'd always thought of meditation as something sort of Oriental, Eastern, Asian, yeah, yeah, Buddhist kind of things. It turned out that in Christianity, there's a form of meditation that goes back way just as far back as Buddhism. It's, it's called contemplative prayer that the early Christians practiced in monasteries. And if you wanted to learn about it, the origins of it, you had to study monasteries. So that answers your question. Mm. I began studying monasteries, got intrigued just by the idea of the fact that there were these things called monasteries that were sort of radical, where men and women threw off all the the, the makings of, of the, all, everything we consider important in life, you know, right. uh, money, <laughs> uh, 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 sex, <laughs> um, uh, uh, the ability to travel, and went and lived this radical lifestyle, and uh, and 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 that intrigued me, and it, it intrigued me also because it's still going on, right? You know, in this world where we all can't live without uh, electronics and 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 phones and movies and everything else and cars, there you know there's there are monks and nuns around us right now, and they're le- leading these sort of extraordinary quiet lives that we don't know about hidden away and that sort of intrigued me too yeah i i I did a summer semester in england i guess this would have been um well i guess summer of 99 i suppose i did a summer semester Uh, i went to washington college very near to uh talbot county free library where you're the library guy um Mm. and we went so when i was over there we were studying the poetry of william uh wordsworth so we traveled, we would get up in the morning, 15 of us would all make breakfast, pack our lunches, and then we would grab our backpacks and we would hike, you know, Greenhead Gill, and we would hike Helvellyn, and we hiked all these mountains and all these things. And when we would get to the places where William Wordsworth wrote Greenhead Gill, we actually sat in the place where he was. And Way it was, cool, yeah. It was a very cool, it was yeah. a very immersive experience. Sure. And so one of the things we did was we visited a lot of these abbeys. So we, to me, what was so incredible is there is this, it is, they are so immense, but they're so, they're also sort of simple at the same time. It's this. And then of course, King Henry VIII came down and was like, you know, (laughs) you won't let me have all the ladies that I like. So I'm going to burn your stuff (laughs) to the ground. Right. So they were kind of burned out. And what was so, it was just this very stark, moment it was this very you know we were standing in these abbeys where the roofs had been burned off very much king henry but um the the architecture was there and it was just i could i remember there were a few moments when we visited uh, some of these different abbeys where i was standing in them and you're in the you know what would be like the aisle or the nave i can't remember the exact thing but you would be standing like where you would be facing the the main altar i guess or whatever and you're looking up at this sky and i remember kind of in my mind in those moments trying to transport myself back to what would this have looked like right and then you you know when i was listening to your reading i remember kind of going back to that moment because your work is like 
and if you're listening to this podcast, please go to the website and listen to Bill's reading. It's really fantastic. But it's that same sort of immersive experience. And did you ever have any sort of like opportunity to do that or see those or, or get sure, yeah. kind of like because that really feels like just touching history in a very real way oh it sure is yeah i the um uh, when i was doing the research on this book i um uh i i went to england uh and visited both ruined abbeys and still extant abbeys still abbeys that are still standing i also um uh i i went on retreat i continue to go on retreat periodically to abbeys here in the united states there's a sister Abbey. Cistercians are the Trappists, uh, commonly known as Trappists. They're the ones who take the vows of silence. They're, they follow the Benedictine rule, but they, they also take a vow of silence. And they, they tend to isolate themselves out in the middle of nowhere. And they're also, they're almost sort of like Quakers. They really believe in simplicity. And so they don't have any ornamentation in their churches. Everything's real spare. Uh, and so, yes, I've immersed myself as best I could in monastic life without giving up my wife. Yeah, there's always that. Happy wife, happy life. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> and um, uh, uh, and I've had in, any number of monks who've been a great deal of assistance to okay. me, and I give them credit in the back of the book. Um, there, there were some remarkable people out there, and nuns too, for that matter. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then I think um, one of the things we always like to talk to our guests about is the publishing aspect of it. And um, so you, this was published by Seagant Publishing, um, good, yeah. old, good old Ron Souter. Yeah, well, that's that, that that's one of those kind of dreams come true sort of stories, at least from my point of view. And I'm sure for most writers, it's you know it's such a difficult world out there now to get published in. And when I, just like you, you were telling me earlier before we started the show, the uh, your own experience when I uh, when I finished this novel. Um, I had these big ideas of what would happen. You know, I was expecting uh, 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 Scribner's or somebody to come knocking on my door. And I sent out letters and I sent out manuscripts and I got all kinds of really nice letters back, many of them very complimentary, saying, you know, this is really good, but I just don't think it's going to make a lot of money. Right. And also, I got form letters back, rejections, you know, that, that always makes you feel real good. It's, we, we talk about it all the time only because I've been I've been submitting essays and it's like, they come in waves. They don't even yeah. – Is it like sometimes you're like, I don't know if I'd prefer to get a rejection letter every day for the rest of my life or to have 10 in one day. You know? <laughs> I don't know if there's a good way to get them, but it's always tough. It's like, oh, God, everybody well, and hates I don't know about all you, all but they once. always seem to come on the days when I'm looking forward to something. I'm really excited you about something. don't need it. Yeah, yeah, and you go to the mail and you go, oh, blast. Yeah. You know, I didn't need that. <laughs> Anyhow, the, um, so I, to be quite honest, I'd given up. Um, I, I've searched for about, I mean, I worked really hard at it and for about three years, I would guess. And it was, it was, it was beginning to have an effect upon me psychologically. I think, you know, all the rejection and I, you know, I'm not as tough as other people. And, uh, and I, I said, you know, it's just for my own mental health sake, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. And that was when I went to work at the library and I was real happy. And I've been working at the library for about five years and continuing to get things published in literary reviews periodically. And, um, uh, and in, one day, uh, I get this call. I can't. Remember, I think it was at work because I, yeah, I've got it at work. Um, from this guy, he says, "I'm Ron Souter. I'm starting a publishing company in Salisbury, and I just read a poem of yours in. Uh, it was the Delmarva Review, and uh, and I was. I, if you ever have a, a book, you know, I might like to publish you. And I said, "Well, I I've, I've got a manuscript," <laughs> and he said, "Well, send it to me." So I did, and he called me back within a week and said. Um, 
I'd like to sign you up. I'd like to give you an advance. Um, and can we meet for lunch? And I got to tell you, my first thought was scam. Yeah. <laughs> I really that's, I thought, that's oh, man. too good to be true. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely impossible. Like who calls you up and says, hey, let me have your book? Yeah, you know, and, right? and, and then says they want to give you an advance. I mean, that right. just doesn't happen anymore. But I figured I might get a free lunch out of it. So he said, where do you sure. want to meet? You know, and I said, out of the fire, because yeah. that's my favorite restaurant in oh, Easton. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great oh, place. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so, so we, we, I meet this guy and, and I, I remember thinking the minute he asked for money, I'm out the door. Right. And he never did. And he sent me the advance check, a really healthy advance. And, and it, it, it didn't bounce. Right. It was, I mean, he, and he's a wonderful guy. And, and as you can see, I mean, he did a beautiful job. Uh, he hired, uh, he's hired artists in, uh, England to do the maps in the front and the painting of the, uh, drawing of That's the, fantastic. of the monastery. Um, uh, he entered the, 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 the cover was so beautiful. He entered it and it, I don't know if it won an award, but it should have, I think. Um, and he's just supported me all along, and you know the royalty checks. I'm not. I'm not going to give up my day job anytime. Right. But he's real good about sending me those. Uh, so, um, I mean, he. If, if you're out there and you're you're thinking about, you've got a book you'd like to have published. You couldn't do any better than uh, Ron Ron Souter at Seekin, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, he's a, he's a super nice fellow. We had um, some of your your fellow alums, Seekin alums. We had. Um Karen Caridi yes. and Ann Himes and uh, Barbara Lockhart, who was actually just here for our writers' meeting last night. Oh, great! Yeah, and we were talking about. She was trying to teach me how to how to pronounce the, the title. <laughs> but um, you know, and everyone who knows about this work just raves about it, and they're okay. like, "Oh, you got to talk to Bill Peake. He's super fun." And but what they they talk about is how good it was, and then it goes on to win all these awards. So clearly. I mean, there was something to it. I've been very fortunate. I really have. It's, it's been a good run. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what kind of effort did you make socially like, to, get the, to get the word out? Because that's, that's still, even, even when you're traditionally published, there's, a, there's some weight on you to, get, you know, to get on fancy podcasts, but also to get other people to, to shout out about your book. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, unfortunately, I'm not really good at social media kinds of things, but for, my wife is pretty good at it, and so she's been a big help. Ron purchased a website for me, uh, so I've got a website. I think it's williampeak.com, but is that it? Okay. That's, <laughs> yeah, that is nodding. super yeah, convenient. It. Tony Russo was taken oh, like, really? on day two of the internet. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, so mine, mine, I've got that. Um, and, uh, uh, and yeah, every, every opportunity I've had book fairs, what, you know, readings, I've given readings all over the place. Uh, Ron's, Ron's done the mo- a lot of the promoting, to be quite honest. I mean, he's really good. He, he just finished. He had a big contest that he entered. Uh, there's an organization that runs these contests where uh, people all across the country that belong to book clubs. No, first of all, people can enter individually to win free copies of the book. And that gens, gens up a lot of interest because, you know, we had, I don't know, 75 entries for that. Uh, and only five books were given out. And then, uh, and, and then the one for book groups in which I do, um, What's it called where you, where you sit in front of a computer and they, they film you? It's S-C- Skype. Skype, thank you. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm an old guy, you can tell. S-C-I-P. A bit of a fossil, yeah. And so so they Skype me into these book groups, and a whole slew of them entered for that, and then we had, I think, five or six winners. And so the so he does all kinds of things like that. I mean, you know, but if you if you want to know social media tricks, you need to talk to my wife. Oh, yeah, he's he's real creative. He's he's a bright fella. a nice guy. And, and so, have you have you had the courage to take another crack in another novel? Do you have? You know, I would love to. The um, I, I I 
it's interesting what's happened to me in that, in that because of that uh, break after I finished the book and went to, went to work for the library, I'd never worked for a library before, and I realized I love it. I'm really very good at it, I think. I'm really good for the library, and I really believe in it. I think libraries are very important institutions. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and and I love Talbot County, and I want to uh, – you know, I could spend the rest of my life just doing things for Talbot County and for the people of Talbot County with the library. Um, and then all of a sudden, I have this success with this book, and Ron says he wants me to write another novel. And I've got an idea for one, and I love writing. One of my part of my job at the, at the library is I write a column uh, for the Star Democrat, huh. uh, uh, and uh, and people love that. And so I write every morning. I work on the column, and I'm sure it's true for you all too. There's something about writing. It's a challenge. And there are times. I saw something the other day. Ernest Hemingway said, "All you need to write is you just sit down at a typewriter and bleed." Yeah, <laughs> right. You know, but Ernest liked to kind of lay it on thick. You know. Yeah. In in truth, there are times that you bleed, but in in truth, there are a lot of times when it's really fun. You know, the um, you know, when you get good at, it, you know, you have to work for years to achieve any sort of skill and craft. But once you get there, you know, you're going to figure. You know, you may have a problem for a while, but you know you're going to get there and and you're going to create something really beautiful uh and there aren't a lot of us that are given that opportunity and it's a gift you know i i would love to pretend that 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 i'm the creator of this novel but i don't know where it came from it was out there and i just happened to find it it's a great story and i don't think bill peak did it all by himself um but that is such a wonderful gift, and it's so much fun when it happens. You know, when you, you look down at the page and go, oh, wow, you know, and the hairs on the back of your own neck rise up. Right. You know? You've done something really well. Um, that's what writing's all about. And so, yeah, I, 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 I daydream. I, it's my dream someday to look forward to retire. And then, I've, yeah, I've definitely got at least one more book in me. Yeah. We were talking, I was speaking with one of, uh, with one of my colleagues today about getting um, people to blog because mm-hmm. it's one of one of my duties, and I think that a lot of people like the idea of writing better than they do. The instance of writing is kind of what I say because it's fun it's to do a couple. Yeah. But what I said, I said I was writing. Uh, I was a reporter for probably three years before I woke up one day and I'm like, no, this is what you do. Like, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're not inspired. It yeah. doesn't matter. You know, you're getting up and and getting through it, or else like just. When you're not writing, it just weighs on you. It's not like, oh, well, I didn't write today, so what? I did something else. It's like, it's like a sickness that, like, this is gonna get to me if I don't if I don't deal with this soon. Oh, you got to do it every day, yeah. yeah. And then or the other thing, you, make the effort. You know, put in the put in the worry. I agree. And the other thing you have to do, yeah. Flannery O'Connor said, you know, you have to have your butt in the chair. Yeah. <laughs> and if yeah. God wants to send something, He will. <laughs> the uh, the other thing you have to do, um, uh, and and this is another thing that, that people tend to forget. I meet a lot of people, just like you, who, who a lot of people who who want to be writers and like the idea of being a writer, but they don't really like to read. And boy, you gotta read like a madman, you know. If you, if you, to get the fluency you require, the vocabulary you require, the, 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 the ability to just tap into a, a vein of good writing at any time you want it, you've gotta have a whole lot of reading in the background. Yeah. You know, I read like, I read at least two hours every day, uh, on top of all my regular work, because mm-hmm. if I don't do that, you know, it's like practice. If I, if a pianist doesn't practice every day, he ain't gonna, he ain't gonna be able to play when he gets to do the concert. If I don't read, when I sit down at the at the computer i'm not gonna be able to write yeah we were just actually talking about this on one on the last podcast and there's a stephen king has a quote and i think it's in the his book on writing a memoir of the Mm -hmm. craft and he says something to the effect and i'm not going to do it right but 
if you you have no business being a writer if you're not reading. Yeah. You know, Good you got to have yeah. the tool. You got to be a, the the two things are not mutually like you got to have they're two halves of a thing. So you're absolutely right. You know, if you're not reading, then why are you be, saying you're a writer? <laughs> yeah. You don't know. You don't know the craft. You don't know what, how the. There are people who have been amazing writers long, you know, that that go far back. And if you if you don't know the history, if you don't know how people are doing turns of phrases, and if you don't know how people are using language and, and telling stories and creating characters, well, you think you're just going to be born and know it all? No, absolutely not. So you gotta you gotta know what you gotta do. Do you know what I like to read? Uh, your stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I like to read emails where they suggest words that we can send to them in <gasps> limericks. Right, right. <laughs> so, folks, if you um, are listening, and I guess you are listening, if you heard me say that, um, we will send you a postcard if you want one. Just uh, contact us through the so what's your story podcast dot com, and there you'll find a form where you can reach out and say you hate the show, you love the show, but also we take suggestions, and if you send us your contact information that is your your physical address and a word um stephanie will turn it into a haiku i will turn it into a limerick and we'll send you back a postcard with the limerick and haiku on them um it's just a little conceit that we developed and it's cool because it made people it didn't make people send us email first we got some mail we said oh we would be nice to do something for people who are nice enough to reach out and say yeah that's neat yeah well huh? first of all we were blown away that we had fan mail yeah because <laughs> we thought it was just gonna be like five people listening yeah. to us and then we ended up with fan mail and we're like hey we should do this thing so tony loves limericks uh i was like i can't do a limerick i'll yeah. do a haiku yeah i can do five seven five and uh so anyway we had this thing and people send us a word and if they don't send us a word i open up tony's beer book yeah. and i close my eyes and i just flip to a page and i pick a word at, at closed eyes and random and that's the word they get on did anybody ever send you a bad word <laughs> one guy sent the word damn oh really okay yeah, yeah. So, but so you could play around with that word and i thought you meant a difficult word i think the most difficult word was hedicum uh-huh. um, but we 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 which is which is uh a hundred steer that are killed in service of the greek oh, gods. Okay. Um, and, and, and have you ever heard the great uh dorothy parker story about horticulture no Someone came up to her at the um, uh, what's the hotel that she used to hang out in New York? I Chelsea, is that it? I don't. And know. That's uh, the only hotel and I know said that better, better. She was so you know she was so brilliant, and better she couldn't uh, come up with a pun using the word horticulture. And she immediately said, "You can lead a horticulture, but you can't make her think." Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? It's probably politically incorrect yeah. these days too. But <laughs> um, yeah, that's probably good. No offense intended. You're not going to hear that on the radio. Yeah, yeah, I figured that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we got about three minutes to cut. I just found forty-five seconds. Of it. <laughs> that, that, that's gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it will be. My yeah, mother will be so glad. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is, if you are listening to this on the podcast, you can listen to it yesterday on the radio. Our show is on um, WSDL ninety point seven Rhythm and News. Um, so you can tune in on Saturdays at one p.m. We follow this American Life. So you can pretend that you just missed Ira Glass and you got to listen to me instead. But anyway, so please reach out to us. If you send us some love, we will send you haikus and limericks. And I think that's all we have. So now, Stephanie, this is the part of the show where you thank the guest. Thank you very much for being here, Bill. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, Stephanie, this is wonderful. Tony, wonderful. Thank you both. This has been a really neat afternoon. And thank you very much. So What's Your Story is recorded weekly at Saltwater Media in Berlin. You can catch it 1 p.m. Saturdays on WSDL 90.7 FM Rhythm and News following This American Life. 
Visit SoWhatsYourStoryPodcast.com to hear previous episodes, readings from our guests, and links to follow us socially and let us know what you think of the show. Thanks for hanging out, and we will see you next week. Tell your story.